0: What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Boardroom Network. This is the Out of Office podcast, and this is our fourth one. As always, Gianni, what's really good? What's up, Rich? Chilling, man. You know, I was thinking about this morning. I'm having a very hard time with my kids getting older, bro.
1: Yeah. How old are they?
0: 11 and 7. And I know if you're hearing that as like a 25 year old, you're going to think it's crazy. Like they're still little kids, but something about this six-month quarantine i've gotten closer to my kids than ever and really put an emphasis on cherishing every moment and with that as summer's coming to an end and time continues to fly and uncertainty in the world it just dawned on me that like every minute of the last six months that i spent with them is gone right so when i started thinking of it that way i was like damn man all these moments as incredible as they are they're flying by and it's sad, and I'm having a hard time with it, bro, but I'll tell you, I'm also cherishing these moments, man, more than ever. What, what else is there to do?
1: Right. It seems bittersweet. I mean, you know, you get all this time with your kids that you don't normally have because you're so busy, and they have school, and now it's fall in New York City, and it's like, damn, what we, how are we going to keep this outside family activity vibe going?
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's just a weird time, man, and uh, yeah, that was my thought this morning, bro, but you know what? You're years away from having kids, so... When I was 25, if someone told me something about their kids, I'd be listening to them, but I'd be thinking about something else. So I hope you're not thinking about something else. Nah, I love kids. (laughs) So today, bro, we got another incredible guest. This man is the head coach of North Carolina Central, which is a HBCU, a historical black college. And more than that, he's won, he's got all the accolades, he's got three championships and two coach of the years. But more than that, he's in a lot of ways like the Coach K of the HBCU world. So he's also become a voice during this time that I think his students and his players have obviously leaned on. But I think a lot of the sports world is realizing that this is a message that he's been kind of bringing home to his organization and his university for a long time. And this is now a conversation that's happening finally on a main stage. And Uh, His words have never been as important as they are now. So it's really exciting to have him on, man. And I think that athletes are going to start to look very hard at HBCU as a real option, as opposed to going to one of the major colleges. And we've seen it already with two kids that are some of the top recruits in the country choosing to go play at an HBCU. And, And I think... Beyond the sign of the times, this man that we're about to speak to is one of the big reasons for that. So I'm very honored to have Coach Lavelle Moten, the Coach K in my mind of the HBCU world. Coach, what up, man? How are you today?
2: (laughs) Rich, what's happening, man? How y'all doing? What up, Coach? What's up, G? How y'all doing, man?
0: We are good. So for listeners that don't know, um, I'm going to make this job easy on myself and have you tell everybody, um. First of all, who you are, and um, then let's talk a little bit about how you got here, and then at the end, I want to talk a little bit about the current state of HBCU. Uh, what's been happening in our world, and how it relates to what you've been trying to do forever. Um, so, tell me a little bit about who you are, what you do, where you coach, and, and where you're from.
2: Uh, Lavelle Moton, man. L e v e l l e m o t o n. My mother. And grandmother always made me say my name, repeat my name, and spell my name for anyone that I've ever come across, man, uh, because in their minds I was going to be special one day. So that's fate would have it. But um, I'm originally – I'm a head basketball coach at North Carolina Central University, um, originally from Boston, Massachusetts, born in Boston, Massachusetts, and um, resided to Raleigh, North Carolina at an early age, attended Enloe uh, High School, um and also went to north carolina central for four years on a basketball scholarship and um had a decent career there and uh played overseas for seven years and i've been coaching well i started training nba basketball players upon completion of that and uh then i started coaching uh as assistant coach at north carolina central for two years and then i became the head coach and now i'm going into my 11th year all
0: right so You did it justice. Incredible, incredible um, career you've had, and you're so young. Talk to me a bit about um, growing up in Boston and kind of that moment, you know, for me, what I've asked everybody that I've met and what has always been really uh, inspiring for me is kind of figuring out like that moment or that inflection point in somebody's childhood when they first kind of just became aware with like what you want to be when you grow up, right? Like that question you're asked as a kid starts to kind of evolve a bit until you really start to think about what you want from yourself in this world. And you could be dreaming and you are dreaming as a kid. But a lot of times that dream right there um, is the start of like the journey. And for me, it was. So talk to me a bit about how you imagined yourself growing up in Boston and, and before you moved to North Carolina, what's your life look like?
2: I grew up in in the Roxbury portion of Boston, man. Called uh, a housing project called Orchard Park Projects, and um, you know, you mentioned Orchard Park Projects is is notoriously known for violence, right? And so, um, my thing was, all you ever heard about at an early age was whatever you want to be, you're not going to be it because life and the circumstances and the curveballs that life throw at you is just not going to allow you to succeed. And so, we were a group of kids in that community who really didn't have the exposure. One of the biggest things at that particular time in that neighborhood was uh, uh, talent shows, right? And so everyone would get these groups together and accumulate these talent shows because music was the thing. And back to your point, my life forever changed. Um, And and let me back up one step. When I was four years old, my father came into our apartment and it was the typical, like, I'm about to go out, which I want back. And we placed the order, my my older brother and myself. And the next day, he never came back. And so I asked my mom, I was like, where is my, my dad at? Selfishly, I was just asking because I knew he was going to the store. So I needed, you know, my honey bun and chips and all the things I asked him to come back. But she looked me dead in my face and she said, He gone and he ain't coming back. So at four years old, that was my introduction <laughs> into the the real world, I had to grow up then. in in our household and in that community, it's taboo to ask your mother about your father ever again. So that was it, that was in the conversation. So you just bottle up those emotions and you just grow and now you're trying to find yourself but you can't see anything. We didn't have cable TV, we only had three channels, ABC, CBS, and NBC. And so going back to these talent shows, um, they had them weekly. And one day, I'm outside playing, and my mom called me in the house, and my life forever changed. She said, Puffy, Puffy, you got to come in. And I run in there, and I look. And on the TV, she has the TV on Soul Train. That was the thing on Saturday morning, Soul Train in our household. And it's five guys that's from my projects on Soul Train, and they went by the name of New Edition. And so I said, wow. Like, it just did something
0: to me. Uh, I just knew, like... Wait, so... Hold up. New edition, New editions from Roxbury, Massachusetts. That all rings a bell now. So they grew up in your projects? Watch your Park projects. Yeah. We all from the same projects. Yeah. And so they had won a talent show.
2: And we were hearing like, you know, they're going to get, they won the talent show, but they were every week. So whoever won just won. And then they, you got like $25 and then you tried to compete in the following week. And they five years older, some six years older. And I didn't know they had the record there. And they're on Soul Train, and they also have the number one song in the nation with Candy Girl. And, and, and it's in front of Michael Jackson's Beat It or at the time. And I just see them on TV, and it just it was the first time in my life I could ever remember I saw a reflection on myself on that TV. Prior to that, the only person that was congruent to my life and only family that was congruent to my life was... Uh, good Times with J.J. J. Evans, right? I love different strokes, but that wasn't a reality. No white man was going to come adopt us and save us, you know, from the life that we were living. And so when I saw New Edition, I said, yo, these are five kids from the housing projects from the ghetto who their rent is the same as mine. I know their struggle is the same as mine. And it really flipped me out because right after I saw them on Soul Train, I went up to the park and they were at the park. I was like, "Wow, how the hell y'all get up here so fast?" Like, I didn't know that tape delay and none of those. Like, <laughs> I was just tripping. Like, it was just crazy. <laughs> but, but, like, how y'all get from Soul Train to here? <laughs> Had me thinking Soul Train it was in Roxbury somewhere. Like, it was it was really weird, man. And it just it, it was the first time I said that's what I wanted mm-hmm. to. They were my inspirations, and so that's the unique thing about this basketball. It was the furthest thing from my mind. I wanted to do. What they did, and I went and got four more guys, and we called ourselves the Next Edition, as if a record label was going to come from the same projects and get five more guys to compete. Like it was crazy. But wait, how
0: old are you for uh, Next Edition?
2: I'm I'm seven eight right now.
0: So 7-8 right. <laughs> is about the only time where you still think you can just flip new edition, call it next edition, and you're going to yeah, get yeah, out. Yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah,
2: was-
1: And I feel like when you're 7-8 years old, that's like the age where you and all your cousins and your crew are just like dancing in front of the mirror, figuring it all out, being your little crew.
2: You move the coffee tables. And honestly, man, that was as, as crazy as it sounds. That was probably the beginning of my coaching stint because I was the leader of the group. And if you weren't doing what I said, do I kicked you out of the group and went and got someone else. So we rehearsed every day after school at four o'clock and we rehearsed for an hour and we played my mom's record player. So it was like, it was an itinerary mm-hmm. at eight years old. And, um, you know, that was, that was really the initiative where I thought this is what I want to do. And this is what I am going to do with my life.
0: So I have a question for you. Um, not to have to harp on what you said earlier, but at four years old, your dad left, never came back. And the only conversation you had with mom was just, did he go to the store? He's never coming back. And you didn't ask about it again. And you knew. You knew at that age that that was what the rules were.
2: I knew. I knew because the other thing is, in our housing project, it's 400 apartments. If you knock on every door, maybe five guys would come to a door out of those 400 right so we already knew like it was only it was only a matter of time it was just it was just what it was and you couple that with the inception of crack where it was like destroying our families within in the in the infrastructure from within that y- you kind of knew and so inside i'm feeling like my life is going to be the same as everyone else's right and i said i got to do whatever i need to do to prevent that from happening and so i'm extremely thankful that god gave me a vision beyond my present set of circumstances because it allowed me to see further, right? And the risk that I had to take was to bet on myself for the end game. And that's why I never judge anyone because the risk that they had to take was we need family, food, shelter right now. And so they had to go in the streets and they had to do what they had to do. And at that time, kids my age were recruitable guys to sell drugs. Right. So I, it was just a decision that I had to make, man. And I'm just glad God gave me a vision beyond my present set of circumstances in that case.
0: One hundred percent, man. And, and, and you know that had it not, it wouldn't have been all your fault. The environment right. um, didn't allow you to have the odds be in your in your favor. But you see them on TV and um, two questions. First of all, I have to ask, um, could New Edition really hoop?
2: Michael Bibbins could really hoop. Shout out to Michael Bibbins if he if he's listening. Um, Shout out Mike, Michael Bibbins. Yeah, Mike could really hoop. Like Mike, Mike could really do it, right? Um, his first coach was my first coach, a guy by the name of Marvin McIntyre, who's now um, the director of. He has his own studio in Atlanta, where like if you have a concert or you need to prepare for this routine or this tour, that's the man that you go to see, and and he's responsible for. Boys to man and TLC and Usher, you know, all of those groups right there. So we had the first same basketball coach.
0: Wow. So Michael Bibbins could really hoop, but Michael Bivins. you couldn't be in a in a R and B group though. Is that fair to say?
2: Yeah, man, it was just the time and the, the record labels were sleeping on me, man. <laughs> 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 they were sleeping. I don't know. I don't know where Clyde and Puffy and Jermaine Dupree was. They were just sleeping on me.
0: Well, why'd they call you Puffy?
2: Um I think because I was puffy, right? I was I was a chubby kid, man, and, and you know I, I got the name from my grandmother.
0: So no deep meaning. You were just fat. Yeah. you were a fat kid. Yeah,
2: you were fat. <laughs> just, that, that, it was just fat. Just <laughs> fat.
0: So when did you find basketball? When did you When did you fall in love with the sport?
2: Man, we moved from um, from Orchard Park, and we moved and we moved to Raleigh, North Carolina. And my grandmother lived in raleigh north carolina and so we're going into another housing project called lane street and at the corners the basketball court is the cornerstone in every hood in america and at this particular court man every single day like i i would go up there and i would just shoot and mess around but my mom would kill me every time she heard i was up there because it was so much violence and it was no place for at the time i'm a nine ten years old no place for a nine or 10 year old child to be. So, everything, I, I'm seeing everything. I'm seeing people inject drugs. I'm seeing prostitution. I'm seeing shootings, stabbings, fightings, you know, people getting caught in the crossfire. So, it was no place for me to be. But I loved the game so much. And I began to love the game because my friend and I, I mean, we were creative. We knocked the, we took a bicycle rim, knocked the spokes out, put, put uh, shoestrings for nets, and knelt it to a tree. And we called it a basketball goal. And so my mom saw me practicing on this goal. So she went out and bought me a pair of Sky Jordans. They were Sky Jordans then, right? And it was the smaller version of Jordans, but a basketball came with it. And she gave me the basketball and I just went up to the park and I kept playing. And honestly, Rich, I was using it as peace and tranquility because I would always hear my mind was racing. I was going through so much as a kid. I would hear gunshots outside my door. so it was mental health for me. It was just tranquility where I could go up there and shoot by myself. And then eventually I just grew to love it.
0: And when you first started playing, um, and I totally relate to that. Like I, I never played basketball at a high level. I've loved basketball since as long as I can remember. But as a kid, I, I would remember like consciously taking my basketball and dribbling and like doing air moves and, Doing anything just for like that split second to forget about how I was feeling mentally, physically, whatever it was. I remember being in college. I was spazzing one night. I, I, we can't even get into the story, but it was. I was losing it, and I I took. I was on Commonwealth Ave. Remember, you know you know Boston well. Obviously, grew up there. For, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm on Commonwealth absolutely. Ave. And like all my friends were out in the club. I was at the house. It was I was a freshman or sophomore and I was losing it. And I took the basketball and just ran up Commonwealth Ave, ran into everybody leaving the club. And I remember like not even being able to explain that I just had to do it. It was therapy for like 30 minutes.
2: Yeah. That's it was a it was a sanctuary, man. It was it was tranquility for me, you know, even at that early age, because we had so much going on at that particular time that it was my escape.
0: Yep. So when you first saw New Edition, you said you like that was your time where you were like I want to get out. Why? Why did you guys move to to North Carolina? Just better opportunity to live and more. Well,
2: I tell you what, our neighborhood was getting out of control. Right, kids are now being kidnapped, um, because their uncles or cousins owe a drug debt, and so they're used as collateral damage and being used uh, as as ransom money. And the thing that broke. My mom, uh, she worked three jobs, and this particular night, she was going to work with um, one of her her best friends, and she said she's not going to go because she didn't feel good, my mom. So my mom didn't feel good, so she said, I'm staying home today. Long story short, her friend goes to work, comes back, and when she they caught the bus, and when she get back to the bus stop, a group of guys meet at the bus stop robber duct tapered to the bus stop and set on on fire and it was part of a gang initiation and so in my mom's mind she said if that would have been me if i would have went to work that night and so coupled that with the drugs and the violence she said no i'm out like this is i'm out and my grandmother kept telling her to come back down because we are originally from north carolina my mom is originally from north carolina but she was just trying to go find the american dream in different aspects of the city and she was a country girl. So my grandmother encouraged her to come back home at that time. And, you know, the word on the street is the movie New Jack City is based on characters of Orchard Park. So that's exactly how things was happening at that, that particular time. And so we, yeah, we moved to uh, Raleigh. We moved to Lane Street. And, um, you know, that's, that's how we came down.
0: And Raleigh is obviously like uh, one of the meccas of basketball. I mean, every city... Claims they're the Mecca, obviously New York's the Mecca, 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 Mecca. (laughs) But did you think about basketball ever before that kind of landing in Raleigh as a way out? Or was it then when you started using it as a therapy, you realized you were good?
2: Yeah, it was. I'll tell you exactly what happened. My mother cleaned houses for a living. And so when you're in the bed at night and you open up your refrigerator and nothing is in there and you have to go to bed hungry but you know you have a mother that's busting her butt to do everything and provide for you and your brother but now when you lay down you can't go to sleep because you're hearing gunshots outside your room and you got roaches and rats and you got these circumstances where if the we stayed on the bottom floor if someone upstairs washed two clothes of clothes the ceiling would fall in right at any minute the plumbing wouldn't be working so you, you know you have to get out of these circumstances, like this is not cool. And when my mother was coming in this door every single day, cleaning the homes of these rich people with the mop and a broom and, you know, her cleaning supplies and you can't do anything as an 11, 12 year old kid, I would just sit there, I would soak her feet in hot water for 30 minutes. And then when the water turned cold, I would take this cheap cocoa butter lotion and put it on her feet and massage it. Because in my mind, that's all I could do and just to prepare her for the next. So I said to myself, it does something to you when a, a kid sees his mother like that. So I said, my number one goal and only goal in life is to make sure she never works again. And I just simplified it. It wasn't a complex decision. I said, I'm gonna do that by any means necessary, the legal way, I'm gonna try this the legal way. And I go to the boys club one day, and this is probably the episode that changed my life. I go to the boys club and I see these Pepsi trucks outside. I'm thinking they're just restocking the machine. And now I'm playing in the boys club leagues, but, you know, I'm, I'm becoming a pretty good basketball player. As I walk inside the boys club, a bunch of 10 year olds run up to me, who's my age, and say, Man, you got to enter this contest. They're having this contest called a Pepsi Hot Shot. I was like, Man, that shit is corny. I'm not doing no Pepsi Hot Shot. I see all these banners and placemats on the floor and, uh, and, I was like, I'm not doing that. That's corny. The CEO of, the, of Pepsi at the time is there. He comes up to me. He says, I heard you're a really good player. Um, you need to enter. And I said, sir, thank you. But no, thank you. I don't want to do that. He said, well, the winner gets these two two liter Pepsis. I said, shit, well, sign me up here. <laughs> right? so that's, that's what it is. That was my negotiation right there, right? So it's crazy, man. I entered a Pepsi hot shot contest just to get two two liter Pepsis. I win, I, I go, I do the first round, and everybody rush them to the floor and say, yo, you just broke a record. I'm like, man, forget that record. I want these two two-liter Pepsis, right? Little did I know when I won, I won that event. They gave me the Pepsis, but little did I know the following weekend, I had to go compete in the state hot shot championship of North Carolina. So I go there, and I, I win that. Then I got to go to the southeast region and compete in Atlanta. So now I'm at Georgia Tech. Right, and I don't want to do this now. Like it's it's five thousand people in here. I'm at Georgia Tech, and I'm competing against a guy that's won the Pepsi Hot Shot every single year.
1: What's the competition? Are they making you shoot shots or?
2: Yeah. Okay. So the Pepsi Hot Shot is it's five different spots. One, two, three, six different spots. So you got a minute to go to those six different spots and shoot and make as many back buckets as you can. Gotcha. One of them from the top of the key, one from the short corner, one from the elbow, one. You know, like it's is is. Different distances. Each placemat is worth a different value of points, right? And then you get three rounds for one minute. They play this song for one minute, and as soon as it com- is, is finished, they tally your points. And whoever gets the most points after three rounds, that's how they determine the winner, right? So now I'm in, I'm in at Georgia Tech. Two weeks later, and I'm shooting in the Southeast Regional Tournament, and I'm going up against a guy now who's won the Pepsi Hot Shot competition. Every year, he's won it like five years. This is the mid '80s. His daddy's there with a camcorder. Like I ain't never seen nothing like this in my life. The kid has on Pepsi knee pads, sweatbands. Like it's almost he's like sponsored by Pepsi. He done want... His ball is red, white, and blue. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so no, I'm like nobody beating this dude. I'm there with my mentor from the Boys Club, who who kind of helped raise me, and he said. I said, man, I'm kind of nervous now. He said, man, you from Lane Street. If you don't go out there and just shoot the ball. Long story short, man, I end up winning the competition. Little did I know when I won the competition, they hand me a trophy in front of all these people. Little did I know that whoever won that event now gets to go shoot at halftime of the Bullets in the Bulls game at that particular time. The Wizards were called the Bullets back then. So now I'm going to Washington, D.C., to shoot on national television <laughs> of a Pepsi hot shot. The only reason I ever entered this competition was for a two liter Pepsi. And this, it, it has gotten me to this point and I'm like, wow. So all of a sudden, uh, Pepsi is telling me, look, you RSVP and all this type stuff. I'm getting the mail, but I'm throwing the mail away because I don't wanna go. I got an AAU tournament. And I was like, I wanna go, hoop. forget this Pepsi. I done wrote this Pepsi stuff out. And so, my mentor says you need to go and my mom says, oh you going and I say okay I go and when I'm flying the next day into Washington DC it changes my life I remember I remember the flight from North Carolina to Washington DC when I was 11 years old was 39 minutes I remember I'm seeing as we go in I'm seeing the Washington Memorial you know, the, the monument, the white. I'm seeing all of these things I've only seen in a history book because my block in my life was always about a four block radius called the projects. <laughs> and you only went to school and you came back home. And so you never saw the outside of the world. So I go to uh, the hotshot the day before we go to the president's office. Ronald Reagan's the president. We meet Ronald Reagan. Um, I go to the monument. I go to the Lincoln Memorial. I'm seeing all these things I've only seen in history books. I go on national TV and I win the competition, right? When I get back home, like, I'm the man at school because all my-
0: Wait, hold up, hold
1: up. <laughs> right, he's 11. I'm like, who? how old was the person that won it every year?
2: Yeah, he was, he, he was my age group. Right. But he had started when he was like seven, six. Like, I'm like, shit, I ain't.
0: Well, I definitely I didn't see this story going that way. I thought you was going to tell me some cool, like, moment where you won the two, two leaders and you decide you want to play pro hoop, but you're the Pepsi hotshot champion. You probably had 30 liters of soda, too.
2: Yeah. yeah. You know what I'm saying? And so, the, the craziest thing, man, when I get back home, like, they have a parade for me in my, in my hood. Right. And I, ca- I told my mom and my grandma, my, rest my grandma's soul. I said, Grandma, I'm going to get you all out of this. Like, I'm going to take this basketball serious. Like, if this is what it's about, this is is what I'm going to do. My grandmother looked me dead in my face and she said, well, baby, that's cool. She said, I want you to understand something. She said, don't ever forget this. She said, the two most important days of your life is the day that you were born and the day that you figure out why. It's four o'clock. She said, this basketball stuff is cool. But she said when you leave this earth if people remember you as a basketball player then you've done a poor job of living i've never forgotten that in my life and so that was the day that changed my mentality it was the day that said i have to stop hanging out with this group and hang out with this group and i have to focus and center and have a laser-like focus to achieve and accomplish my dreams and and that was the
0: day so at that point you look at basketball and you are ready like you've set the goal in front of you and I talk about that a lot because I do think visualizing your goal or you know I, as a kid I used to write it down and, and make stationery for a company I wanted to start I felt like if I could visualize it it became real and other people believed it and and you and you said you were a leader clearly right you told me you were a leader when you were young did you um did you start setting the mission now on becoming a pro basketball player at, at 11, 12, 13 years old? Were people starting to talk to you and talk about you as if you had the potential to play pro ball?
2: Yeah, but it, it was local. It was local, right? Because we didn't have access to know what people were saying about us nationally or outside of you know our demographic. And so that was a cool story behind it. It was a guy at the boys club named Ron Williams who raised me. Me, P.J. Tucker, John Wall, Devontae, like he raised everybody. And it was that tough love, right? It was, you know, I'm, go- I'm, I'm in boys club leagues now. I'm scoring 40, 45 points a night, and I got to play two age groups up. And everybody's in Raleigh telling me I'm good. And hell, I, I know I'm good, right? You're scoring 40, you're good. But it never mattered because he never told me I was good. So it was almost like me seeing him as my father and wanting that validation and seeking that validation from him. So my goal in life became simply to receive his validation. And even after that, he went with me to the hotshot. Never told me I was good, right? Never said congratulations, never said I'm proud of you. None of that. A, uh, June 19th, 1989, I'm, I'm, I'm crazy with dates it changes we're playing in a summer league as a boys club one of our and I'm playing an age group up one of our best players get hurt Victor Harris and Ron Williams who's my mentor said man you got to step up tonight this championship game I need you step up we play against a team I score 48 points I get MVP they give me the trophy I still have it in my house as we're he takes me home every single night as he's driving me home I'm looking out the window and I'm saying, like, yo, this is the moment. Like, he got to tell me I'm good now, right? It's really that. We, we get in front of my apartment, and I get out the car real slow, <laughs> right? Because I want him to it. And he stops me. And he said, yo. And I was like, what? And he was like one of these manly men, so he won't going to be mushy and tell you I love you. None of that stuff, right? So he said, yo, man, let me tell you something. He said, I've been at this boys club a long time. You're the best basketball player I've ever seen. He said, Man, you keep your head on straight, you're gonna be something special. I went in the house and cried. (laughs) Like it was the craziest. That was it for me. You know what I'm saying? It was the first time a man had ever told me he loved me, right? He said, I love you. So he said, I love you. Now, care your ass (laughs) off. That's exactly what he said. It was the first time a man had ever told me he loved me. That's all I was seeking, you know, throughout my life. And After that, I just remember my confidence going through the roof, not as a basketball player because, you know, your basketball, that's like your alter ego. Just as a person, as a man. I went to school the next day and talked to every girl that I saw. You know what I'm You got in your pocket. Like, (laughs) like, shit, baby, what's your name? You know, I was all on it because it was finally me being able to come out my shell because I always felt like if my daddy could walk out the door and leave me. Anybody else can. So it was something about me that wasn't attractive if my father could leave. So I never had the confidence to project myself with pride and have my chest out and my chin up. But him telling me that gave me all the confidence in the world.
0: So you're a three-time champion, you're a two-time coach of the year. Would you say that that coach has been, or in a lot of ways, uh, continues to be like a model for you or some source of kind of like a model of w- what you want to do for your for your players and your students.
2: Absolutely. And we have this habit as as human beings rich, we kind of we kind of teach how we talked. We kind of parent how we were parented. We kind of coach how we were coached. I grew up in some like he just coached me hard. And so when I first got to My first job was as a middle school coach. But when I was first coaching kids, I was just coaching them hard. When I was training NBA guys, I was just training NBA guys hard because that's the only way I knew. And it was the best way for me, and I think it's the best way for everyone else because what he did is hold you accountable, accept no excuses, and demand the best out of you without being demeaning, right? And I think that's what we ultimately want out of life, even though – that process may feel uncomfortable at times, but he's still a model for, you know, me and I love him and I, I call him and I talk to him at least once a week and, you know, he's the standard. He he's the father. When when people say who's your father, I'm like, hit that guy, you know, so I love him dearly.
0: So give me a little bit of like the kind of elevator recap of your playing career a bit. Um, what happened throughout the rest of high school? I know you put up incredible stats and we're all all conference, all state, all the awards you could have went to play in college, but you weren't able to play pro ball. And I think that um, because you put so much focus on hoop as your way out, um, and, and I think a lot of times you hear about these stories of people, I mean everyone knows these stories. You were the man where you grew up. You were the man in your rec center. You're the man in, in your neighborhood. You became the man at your high school, your college, but then it changes. And what you envisioned for your life and that kind of uh, that end goal, you realize you're not getting there. And I think a lot of young people in business and in life when you are on that journey and you realize that it's it's not going to go the way you had it in the cards, but you have to make a bit of a, of a pivot and continue to build on the foundation that you had built for yourself and continue to believe in yourself and look to people that have believed in you. Tell me a little bit about, or tell the listeners a little bit about, A, what happened with your basketball career and kind of where you see it, um, where it kind of stopped from being your ultimate dream playing and then how it started detouring into that next chapter.
2: Um, my sophomore year at Central, I averaged 18 points. Um, my junior year, I think I averaged 27. In my senior year, I was in my, as I approached my senior year, I went and had a conversation with my coach, Greg Jackson. I said, man, I got to make it out. Like this is, I've devoted my whole life to this. Rich, I didn't party. I, I didn't do none of that stuff, right? It was all basketball. And he said, okay, this is, this is the thing. He said, We're in our conference at the time was a conference called CIAA, which produced the greats, Earl the Pearl, Charles Oakley, those guys. Um, he said, listen, it's very simple. The, player, the two best players in this conference is you and a guy at Virginia Union by the name of Ben Wallace. He said, you're going to have to get player of the year to ultimately achieve that goal and the recognition that you want. So as I'm playing throughout the year, word is getting out and circulating like, yo, who's this kid? And our gym is like, it got 21 NBA scouts in it, right? I'm seeing everyone from the Colangelos to Pop to Nelly, like to Jerry West, like everybody's in there, right? And I remember running back in the locker room throwing up because all these heroes is now in here looking at me. And it just felt like so much pressure. And long story short, I ended up being player of the year at the CIAA. Maybe third or fourth in the nation in scoring, Black College Player of the Year. My agent at the time tells me, "This is the '96 draft." He said, "Look, Dallas said they got the 34th pick. If you're there at 34, they're taking you." I'm like, "Oh, shit! I I know it, right? I'm I'm ready." And then we have these guys that start declaring for the draft. Guy by the name of Kobe. Guy by the name of Ray Allen. Guy by the name of Stephon Marbury. A guy by the name of Antoine Walker. Like, I I remember, right? Steve Nash was there, but he was a senior, so you knew he was coming. But the other ones, yeah, I I remember. And I'm like, damn, like, how does this push me back? So we get a call two days before from Dallas, and they say, look, this is the best guard, one of the best guards in the country. And we're going the HBCU route. If we take a guard, it's going to be you at 34. I'm watching the draft, and at the 34th pick, the Dallas Mavericks take Sean Harvey from West Virginia State. He was a, a guard. I went in my room and just cried like a baby. I'm like, what? the heck? Like, it was crazy. It, it was the craziest thing because I, I had read this book before. A year before, my first cousin, Donald Williams, was MVP of the 1993 Final Four with Michigan and Carolina
0: and all that type stuff. Mm, he was cooking. cooking, too. Cooking, right? Oh we had
2: a God. draft party, Rich right? At at his house in 95. And the Clippers said they were going to take him. And we had a draft party, and he never got drafted. And it, I just remember the look on his face, and it was miserable. So the next year, I said, I ain't doing no draft party. I'm going to watch this shit by myself, because I'm not, I'm not going to be let down in that capacity. And that's what happened. So it just made me realize, like, it's political. Like, it was, it's not, the best basketball players in that league. A lot of it is, but once you get around that last 75 or whatever, a lot of it's really political. And it it hurt me because I didn't grow up in the politics. I just grew up thinking whoever's the best get the position. Whoever works the hardest get the position. You earn what you get. And that that kind of broke my heart, honestly.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, it's still political, Mm -hmm. right? And we're realizing, unfortunately, almost damn near everything is political. Right. But you can't tell your players that.
2: Right, right.
0: So what What do you tell your players now when you have players come to you that say, coach, I ain't have any other option. And a lot of your guys, I'd say most of your guys don't play professional ball for a living, or they do, but they're not making NBA money. So what do you tell them? Because politics or not, I assure you that that's probably, um, it's probably not the the message you can uh you can give them, right?
2: Right. As a teacher, well, I consider myself a teacher. As a teacher, you have to be really, really creative. So here's what I do, with Every year, um, I ask everyone on my team, how many of you guys want to go to the NBA at my initial meeting? There's 15 guys in there, 13 scholarships, two walk ons. Everyone raised their hand, right? <laughs> they're not even good enough to earn a scholarship, but they're going to stop Kevin Durant right, in three years. And so I say, okay, here's what we are gonna do because I'm not qualified to shoot anyone's dreams down because I've been part of the 1% and I've been extremely blessed to do so. So what we do is we go into our room, our, our gym, and I have the managers arrange a chi- uh, chairs in a circular um, shape and we play musical chairs, something we all played when we was young, right? And I have the managers play their song and I say, stop it. And whenever they stop, we we remove the chairs. And so the guys don't want to participate at first. But then I say, okay, whoever wins gets a day off in preseason conditioning. And so they ready. They competitive juices kick in. And so we start to remove the chairs. And it go from like 14 to 10, from 10 to 6, from 6 to 2. And then we have a winner. And the message in that is I call them back to the middle of the circle. And I say, listen, the moral of this story is Some of y'all couldn't win a game of musical chairs in your own gym with your favorite song playing with people that you know. Imagine playing musical chairs with a million people, right, with only 35 chairs out here because they draft 60, but they only keep 35, right? People that you don't know. I said, so those are your chances of making it to the NBA. Now, if you feel like you can win that game of musical chairs, God bless you. But this is why we're going to stay on your butt to go to class. This is why we're going to stay on your butt to excel in the classroom and not just accept the 2.0. And I think they ultimately get the message in, in, in hindsight because they say, yo, this real. He ain't telling me I couldn't go to the NBA. But he did put this into some perspective where now <laughs> I got to make sure I go to math class in the morning because this ball will stop bouncing one day.
0: So, when you left college and you didn't get drafted, you went to play overseas. Were you, were you mad at basketball at that point when you realized your playing career was over?
2: Yeah, I was, I was, I went to the Rocky Mount review, Nate McMillan, um, who's from my neighborhood, who was playing with Seattle at the time. um, Said, yo, you got to come out here and play in summer league. I'm out there in summer league and shoot as me and Eric snow and Sherelle Ford, like all of us. And we're playing against the Kobe's and, Paul Pierce and all that. And I played really well. And I was the last cut for Seattle at the time. And George Carl. And they wanted me to go to the uh, CBA at that time. And I said, nah, man, like I need money. So I was, I went to Indonesia. That was my first stint, right? And I was making like $13,000 a month, which I thought I was a millionaire, right? And it was it was sad because now I'm seeing Ben Wallace back here going to make 80 million. Right. And God bless him. Ben was incredible, but I was playing the year over Ben. So I felt like I deserved. you know, I was young. I just felt like I deserved some of that pie too. So you are mad. You are pissed off. and I was pissed off rich. Honestly, I thought I felt my mom. Like I had promised her something. And I thought I felt her. I promised her all my life and she made so many sacrifices that I was going to the NBA. And she had every reason to believe I was going to the NBA. I wasn't just selling a dream. I had the accolades and accomplishments to support it. And I just felt like I let her down. And I was like, damn it, man. So we gotta stay in these projects like two more years. By this time I had four homeboy, I had four childhood friends get killed. Right. And in those 40 years of existence of my housing projects, only six kids went to college six and two was from under our roof. you follow? so it was like if you stayed around there like something was bound to happen and i just felt like i felt my mom and so i was mad at the world
0: so this is like for me this is a, a amazing point in your life because this is the point in your life that 99.9 percent of you know high school and college athletes have to run into and the problem is is this is a lot of times when people forget about them, you know, and the people that looked up to them and supported them and people that um, said yes to them when they thought they was playing in the NBA aren't there anymore. Right. So I think it's incredible what you've been able to do with your life. But at that point, what did you do? Like, how did you turn, uh, you know, what you felt like was failing your mom into training some of the biggest NBA players in the world and then going on to coach and have such success in in teaching the way you have, because that moment could have broke you and it breaks most people. It breaks a lot of people or you never hear about it again. And and that's a shame, too. So what was your what was your um, what was your strategy at that point and And how did you get here? How did you get where we are today?
2: I'm in Indonesia. In the first two weeks, I want to come home. I'm homesick. Like it's it's crazy over there. Like it's the time, time difference is 12 hours. So when I'm sleeping you up, when you when you sleep, I'm up. Like it's it's just all off track. No social media, so there's no connection back to America, right? So it's just all grinded out. And I wanted to come home. The only thing that kept me going is I said to myself, my mom hated her job every year of her life, and she never missed a day, right? And so how can I say I love basketball and just say I'm going to leave because shit ain't going my way. I just wasn't wired, right? So I, that's the perspective I put it in. Then I said, yo, my first check is like $13,000. I only took home nine because I spent four on the phone just calling my mama, what you doing? And So she's like, man, you got to go man up and you got to, you know, grow up. And so I led that country in scoring. And a couple of years after, I went to Indonesia, Germany, And and, uh, Indonesia, yeah, Indonesia, Germany, I led those countries in scoring. But now I'm tired. And so I come back home, and I'm sitting outside of a summer league, and someone says, man, you going back overseas? And I was like, man, I'm tired, bro. Like, because I'm over there like 10 months. I felt like I'm not even an American citizen anymore, right? And so I said, I'm tired. And so he said, man, you ever thought about coaching? I'm like, "Mm." Not really. He said, man, this is a number. You can call West Millbrook Middle School. And I heard they are looking for a coach. So, you know, if you want that, then, you know, just call. So I called the number. And the number, the principal at the time, the assistant principal who's doing the hiring is my seventh grade teacher. She's my favorite teacher of all time. Right. She's my favorite teacher of all time, like most incredible. And we all have that one favorite teacher of all time. This is her. But now she's assistant principal. And this is on a Monday. So I called her. She said, oh, Lavelle, you know, I always love you. Please come in and interview. And I said, okay. So I go in and interview. There's, when I come out the interview, my college coach, Greg Jackson, who's now at Delaware State, he calls me and asks me to come be his assistant. So now I have a decision to make. Do I take the middle school coaching job? And I asked her, I said, how much does it pay? She said $225 a month. So you're going to do it for three months. So that's $675 a year, right? And so he's offering me $85,000 a year to be an assistant coach. So now I got to go in and I got a decision to make. They both saying, let me know by Wednesday. I go pray about it. And I tell my mom, and I can't even tell y'all what my mom says. She's like, well, you better go take that $85,000. Like she just go, <laughs> right? And so what I learned in that moment is when you're making a major decision in your life, if the first question that you ask is what will other people think about you, then you're not living your life like you're performing for acceptance, right? In all my life, I just felt like I was performing for acceptance of others to be included and say, look, I know I'm from the projects, but I'm not a bad guy. I'm not a killer. I'm not." Di-. You, it, and I just got tired of trying to prove myself to people and my worth and my value. And the thing about rock bottom, I always say this, the beautiful thing about the projects, the most beautiful thing that we were rock bottom, but you get a full view while you're down there, <laughs> right? So I, I, I figured life out while I was down there. So I called my um, principal the next day, and I said, I'm going to take the job. And everybody thought I was crazy. Hell, even I thought I was crazy sometimes, and my coach thought I was crazy, but I knew this is what I wanted to do. After two weeks on the job, she said, you're doing such an amazing job. These kids love you. Will you be willing to teach? I was like, no, I'm not no teacher. Like, what? I don't... Teacher, don't you got to go to school for that? It's a, I'm not teaching. Like, this is what a, she said, no, you'll be great at it. It's a curriculum. I said, oh, man. But again, she's my favorite seventh grade teacher of all time. So you can't tell her no. So I start teaching. So we win a couple of championships. And now I apply for some high school jobs. I get three rejection letters from the high schools because nobody wants me. Right. And so I was like, wow, shit. Okay. I guess I'll keep coaching middle school. But I'm also starting to develop my basketball camps, right? Because I'm a coach, it's just a thing to do. So I have all these incredible kids from my hood coming through my basketball camps. And so I got John Wall and T.J. Warren and P.J. Tucker, like Darius Johnson-Oden, Devontae Graham. All these kids are babies, and they're coming through my camp, and so I'm kind of molding them. I apply for a high school job, and, and I get rejected. A lady by the name of Kathy Moore, who was my 10th grade French teacher, it's now the principal at Sanderson High School. She calls me and she said, "I'm going to give you this job because it's always been something special about you." I said, "Wow, okay." She gave me the job. We won three championships, right? And so now I'm on the high school level. I'm still running my camp; it's one of the biggest camps in North Carolina. But now, I I, I go with Jerry Stackhouse, who's one of my dearest friends since we were kids, and I go to him to with him to Chicago, and I see these guys training him, and they're paying. He's paying fifteen thousand dollars a month to be trained, but he ain't getting no reps. It's like twenty dudes being trained for an hour. I was like, "Yo, why you get wasting money?" He said, "Well, why won't you train me then?" I said, yeah, "Hell yeah, I will train you for that, right?" So I start training NBA basketball players, and so that's how I got my name. North Carolina Central called me and said, "Look, we're making a transition. We need you to come back and be the Division Two coach." And I said, "I can't do that." And they're like, "Why?" And I declined them three times, and I said, "Because." This high school principal over here is the only one that believed in me, right? So I'm going to, street thing, I'm going to be loyal to her. Kathy Moore called me in her office, and she's now the superintendent of Wake County Public Schools. She called me in her office. She said, Lavelle, what, what is this I hear about you turning down North Carolina Central? I said, you gave me a chance, and where I'm from, we reward loyalty with that. She took both of her hands, and y'all know this, anytime a woman takes both of their hands and put them on your face like this, like it's, it's, it's a different tone being set. And she said, what you have to offer this world is much bigger than Sanderson High School. You need to take that job and allow the world to see your gifts. And that's the only reason I, I took the job at North Carolina Central. So after two years, we was going through the transition. I was assistant coach. It, I was miserable because we were getting killed and crushed. We just weren't good. And after two years they named me the head coach of North Carolina Central. That's amazing.
1: You won your the high school you won you were winning championships at the moment you got there at the new high
2: school job? The first year I didn't the next the next two years we did. Okay. Yeah. And it was like one of those bad high schools. Like it was in the conference when I played. And we, we hated playing them because you was gonna be up 30, so you couldn't get your average. You was only gonna play like two quarters, you know what I'm saying? So I was like, ah, oh, this there was a soccer school, that's what they were known for. And then we kind of changed that.
0: You know, I think it's funny you have all these people that you keep referencing, right? Like that have these roles in your life and how much of a coincidence you always felt like it was. And not to sound like spiritual and and make this too deep, but there's obviously it wasn't a coincidence. And, you know, I think what you've given into the world comes back to you and the people that you kind of touched along the way and the people that um, came into contact with you. They wanted to make your life better. You know, they believed in you. They believe in your hard work. That's not a coincidence. I also think something you said really resonated with me, and it was a challenge I had when I was younger. Uh, I'm sure, G, a lot of your friends struggle with this too, and it's simple, but you said that you saw your mom go to work every day, so you have to show up. And, you know, a lot of times, I think when people are dreaming and and aspiring, and again, I can say all this because I did it. Like, I, I had done this so long in my life was like, have all the dreams in the world, not really want to go a hundred percent at it, you know, and not really want to, um, not really want to put the work in for a long sustained period of time. And, um, you know, and then when, when, and it doesn't go your way, you get mad and you like, man, fuck this. I'm not, I'm not playing ball in Indonesia.
2: Right. I was dropping
0: 48 in the wreck two weeks ago. Yeah. But it comes back, it comes back around, you know, it comes back around and look, it's not guaranteed for everybody, but. It comes back around. I think you're a perfect example of that. Um, you've been at an HBCU now since 2000. What year? What, what, what year did you start? Well, 2007. 2007. Yeah. So with all your success, I'm sure you've had a chance to leave. How important has this kind of success that you've had and your success both in basketball and in teaching meant to you that you are at an HBCU?
2: You know, it, it means the world for me because is who I am, it's how I was built, it's the school that was, you know, it's different because it's my alma mater as well. And so it's the school that's really responsible for nurturing and molding me from a 17 year old man and giving me the principles of manhood to achieve in this world. But it's also the school that bet on me and gave me the opportunity of a lifetime. So again, that word loyalty, you know, to some people it's just, it's just a term, but, you know, I kind of live by that. And, you know, the business, when you win, you know, people want to approach, but John Calipari, coach Cal told me something, man, and I, I've never forgotten it. He said, look, man, you're going to win and you're going to win big. And a lot of people going to come dangle this carrot in front of you. He said, Two two things I want you to do. Number one, always coach your team. Just always coach your team. And then he said, the other thing is make your current job your next job. And at the time, I didn't know what he meant when he said that. I'm like, well, make your current job your next job. I was like, yeah, cow, what are you talking about, right? And so, as I began to interview and I looked people, the thing about the projects. And living in those the projects over half of your life, one of the beauties in it is you, you develop the gift of discernment because in your apartment building, right, and just in your apartment building, you might have a convicted felon, you might have a drug dealer, you might have a stick-up kid, you might have a pastor, you might have, <laughs> you know, you have all these people with, from all walks of life and you see them on a daily basis. So you learn to know who is who and what is what. And so when I'm meeting and interviewing with ADs, I can instantly feel in five minutes if this is going to work or not. And I know you love me right now, but if I come into your city and I lose three games, are you going to support me and advocate for me to the rest of this fan base um, behind my back? And if I don't feel like it's an unequivocally yes, then I just don't do it. And so – That's how it's been, you know, with me and the HBCU thing. I just know when it feel right, my gut and my instinct has never lied to me, (laughs) right? Never. Like even the things I've done where I really got in trouble for as a kid, I just went against my gut. I already knew like, this shit don't feel right. But I always try to listen to my gut because listening to my gut, my intuition is like listening to God's whispers kind of, right? So if it don't feel right, I have it. And another thing is when I was hired, I told North Carolina Central, I said, look, if y'all hire me, uh, we're going to win the MEAC championship in five years. We're going to be the ACC school, and we're going to be the first HBCU to go to a Sweet 16. And we've done two out of those three. So when it's your baby and your program, I really want to shock the world and go to a, a Sweet 16.
0: And you will, bro. You will, by the way. Yeah. But um, do you feel now also like you got to feel a little bit um – like you can't go now, like you have an obligation and, and i don't I'm not saying this in a you know you know me now, I'm not saying this in yeah. in a way where I'm putting any pressure on you or 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 telling you what I think you need to do, but I would think that you are so imperative right now more than ever um and I remember you said to me that when you were talking to your kids after the George Floyd incident that you said well, not even an incident a murder on the hand <laughs> that you had to go and talk to these. Kids, but that you had been doing this—that this wasn't new for you. This wasn't new for you. Talk to me about that, and talk to me a bit about, um, you know, if you understand what I mean by like you almost can't leave now. You know,
2: right? Yeah, no, I, I certainly understand. Like, look, let's let's be honest. The only reason coaches leave is because they think they're leaving for greener pastures, and financially, it's gonna enhance the quality of life for them and their family and establish generational wealth. Like that's why coaches leave. Right. And I'm not mad at that. Hell you should. But again, man, some people just wire it differently. Right. And I like, I know I got to take care of my family and create generational wealth and things of that nature. But you know, I lived in poverty over half my life. So I learned what true happiness is. Right. And it's not money. Right? It helps, but it's not money. So I'm content. And I really understand who I am. And I, and I didn't allow this business. I had success at an early age. I didn't allow this business to define who I was. I defined who I was and came into the business. And that's a difference because once you go chasing, shit, it's, it's no promise that the, that grass is going to be greener on the other side. But going back to, to to your point, Rich, like, I just think God has blessed me with the ability to teach life lessons by using basketball as a metaphor to do so, right? I I think that's my gift. I think that's my calling. Um, I think that's my purpose in life. I I, I really think it's my calling. Uh, My grandmother once told me, your career is what you get paid to do, but your calling is what you were made to do. And there's a difference between that. A lot of people think you know their career and their their calling is a direct line. It's 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 not. It's two separate things. So my calling is to affect young men that look like me and had similar es- experiences as me, and use basketball as a metaphor to teach them the manhood principles and the life principles. So when the ball stop bouncing, they can be self efficient because they're gonna be future leaders, head of households, husbands, etc. And College has a funnier way of of insulating kids, right? (laughs) Because you you don't think it's a real world that exists out there. And so we carry it and we teach them these valuable lessons every single day. Um, And so now when these atrocious incidents occur, they know, okay, now I got so many calls from our kids saying, coach, I I got it now. I I see why you do X, Y, Z. Um, I know the rhyme or reason behind it. You're trying to prepare us because when we leave here, the roar, of the crowd is going to stop. <laughs> nobody, nobody cares anymore, right? And so it's it's real world, and no one is going to check up on you unless let's face it, you had a disadvantage because you're a black man in this country, man, and that's just how it is. So you, my grandma always told me you got to be twice as good. So I demand the best from these kids every single day, man. And, and so when incidents like this occur you know, they're not hitting rock bottom and they're resilient enough to bounce back.
0: I know the answer, but to put it in layman's for someone listening, why have HBCUs not been able in the last 20, 30 years to compete with the major college programs? Period.
2: Money. Money. That's that's it. Money. Um, There's been a paradigm shift in this country. Um, You know, there was a time where we were considered three-fifths of a human being. And as slaves, if our ancestors were caught reading or writing, then they would be killed, right? Because they didn't want themselves educated. So a lot of these universities, HBCUs, were established as land-grant institutions and alternative means of education, right? So we could educate our own. And I think all of that changed. You know, if if you look at Maybe the '60s and the '70s, the first wave of Hall of Famers in football, all of these guys come from HBCUs. The Larry Little's, the Mel Blunts, the you know the Donnie Shells, the the John Stallwards, the Jerry like these guys came from HBCUs because that's where they were coming from. Those are the universities they was coming from. Eddie Robinson was the Black Nick Saban, right? Or should I say, Nick Saban was the White Eddie Robinson, right? But all that changed, Rich, in 1972, I believe, when in a football game, uh, Southern Cal played Alabama and Sam Cunningham had an incredible day against Alabama. And from that moment, they said, look, we, we don't recruit these black athletes. And so now they're coming back into HBCUs and, and recruiting our athletes because they understood the financial value behind this, right? And so all of these luxurious locker rooms and, and infrastructures that's at these PWIs right now, they come pretty much off the talents of these young Black kids. And that's the reality. And they understand that. And they know that. And so they made themselves stronger, but made us weaker at that particular time. And so now it's become a roller coaster. And now we have to get that back. We have to go back and recruit our kids back into our domain and help make us better because we already know and we're seeing it now, we're hearing it about it now with this COVID. When there's no football and there's no basketball, everyone suffers financially, right? We're all in the same boat now, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Because there ain't nobody running up and down that field and ain't nobody shooting that basketball. We're all in the same boat right now. So everybody across the The country is considered an HBCU right now, and that's why they're fighting like crazy to have football, or fighting like crazy to have, you know, basketball. And so, hopefully, our kids can realize their value, their economic impact, and what they can do for HBCUs if they decide to attend HBCUs. It's almost like investing back into a black business in their family structure.
0: But that's part of the process. That's that I think has been missing a bit, at least. From an outside standpoint, until now is the education of, well, for instance, Gianni, you know who Eddie Robinson is? No, sir. Okay. So he's the head coach of Grambling. You're 25 years old. Did you get pressure from mom or dad to go to an HBCU at all? From dad. You did? Yep. What did he say?
1: I feel like, it's funny because I read this meme the other day that relaxation in a black household is a sin. And so my, my dad wanted me to go to Howard because he wanted me to be around like-minded, like, you know, people that look like me who were just out there working for their education, looking to hustle versus like the kids that I grew up with, very, you know, affluent, relaxed, privileged kids. So he wanted that balance for me. Right.
0: Do you feel like up until now there's been enough education in underserved communities and in inner cities about HBCUs and just how important— the history is and and how the fact that they haven't had the same advantages and the the money and the same opportunity which is why they haven't been able to compete
2: in my in my humble opinion rich um i think the lack of education not only about hbcus and to, to black people about their cultural ancestry i think the lack of education across the world is the reason we see such a racial divide and racism as it is, right? Let me, let, and here's what I mean. In your history book, and G, I'm, you said you're 25? Yes, sir. Okay, so what's that, like 94, born in 94, something like <laughs> exactly
1: that? Exactly 94.
2: Right, okay, so probably, I don't know what school you went to, Rich, I don't know what school you went to, but I'm just assuming. G, if you looked in your history book, in 10th or 11th grade, whenever you took history class in high school, let's say it's a 300-page book. In that book, only five pages was devoted, and you only learned about five black people in your life, right, in that book. And that was Harry Tubman. Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass, Jackie Robinson. You got a little Martin Luther King and some Rosa Parks. And your generation may get an Obama or a LeBron or
1: We get a little bit more ML- MLK.
2: Yeah. Yeah. it's some MLK. Right. So let's say six, seven, let's say seven, seven people out of a 300 page history book. Right. And so now the truth of the matter is you're leaving there with the inferiority complex because you like, oh, Yo, only seven people that look like me made positive contributions to the United States. Conversely, your counterparts are saying they're leaving there with a superiority complex in a sense of entitlement. And they, because they're saying, shit, the other 293 pages is devoted for people that look like us because we did all the work. We made all the contributions and so on and so forth. So both of you are leaving there, miseducated, and neither one of you had a right to feel the way that you feel, right? Because true history hasn't been taught. And so I think that goes to your point, Rich, where in fourth grade, I had a black history teacher, um, Nancy Powell. What she did now, I realize now, it was phenomenal. She taught us about the Holocaust, right? And the atrocities um, that Jews were under. And we read the book, The Diary of Anne Frank, and we did a report on it. And one of our group projects was to write a letter to the Jewish community expressing how you feel for them, right? And all of the letters were kind of synonymous, and I'm paraphrasing, they're like look, we're sorry, this was really jacked up. It's, we love you. We're praying for you. If anything, we could do. Like, it was a genius project. What that did was allowed us to have empathy and sympathy for a race, creed, and color that didn't look like us, right? And so, because it was, it was jacked up. It was, it, shit was crazy, right? And i never forget, she showed us this picture. She probably shouldn't have showed us this picture, it was like the last, I think it was called the last Jew. And it was like a big hole. And some Nazis had a gun up to his head and ready to shoot him. And he knew he was going to die because inside the hole were other Jewish bodies that were already killed. And he was like, It was crazy. Like, it jacked me up as a kid. And I was like, how does this bullshit ha- Who allows this bullshit to happen? What it did was make us sympathize and empathize with them. Nobody has ever done that for black people. That project ain't been done for black people. Nobody wrote a letter to the slaves, empathizing the sympathizers. So that, that's why we feel like we got to fight and we got to holler, Black Lives Matter, because nobody relayed that message at an early age in childhood. You follow what I'm saying? So when our guys understand, if our kids understood that they created science and math, it wouldn't be so difficult for them. If they really understood that HBCUs were the ones who initially allowed them to be educated, in a world where nobody wanted them to be educated, these processes would be much easier. <laughs> you follow what I'm saying? But it's not because they're not being properly educated through a public school system. And I feel like that that curriculum needs to be washed and, and the truth be taught.
0: Well, I think for anybody that utters the phrase systematic racism, or when you hear people talking about it's the oppression of four hundred years, and then you ask them to explain back to you, you know, what they mean, right? Because people are talking about this now. You'll be shocked at how many people, at least that I've seen, can't really explain to you back what they even mean by that, right? When you hear what you just said and put it in those terms, I got chills, man. Like I go through all of school, and I'm supposed to believe there were seven black people that existed in the history of our. I mean, right? It's that's right. that's the system broken from the beginning
2: there you go you would have a different respect for black people if everyone knew they built this country for free you follow like like yep. we're gonna do work in an hour we need our money we need our check right we've done we did 250 years of free manual labor that's why america has become the great economic country that it is hell you got 250 years of labor for free you know, so people would respect that even more if they knew that and they were taught that. But we're taught that Christopher Columbus was an incredible human being. Like, stop this. Like, yep. that's, that's crazy. This dude was a, a murderer, a rapist. He, he landed at the Bahamas. He got some credit for some shit that he never discussed. Like, come on. Like, this is, this is what we're doing. And But they're teaching you that Malcolm was a militant. and He was crazy. And stay away from him. And it's just not the case. That apart, my apartment in Boston two blocks away was 72 Dale Street. That's where that's where Malcolm grew up. <laughs> so we have a rich history of that. And we just need to go back to square one, rip up all these public school education curriculums and teach the truth.
0: Yeah. But you know what? You also have to teach how you got here. Um, because for my children, right? I have two girls that are 11 and seven. Uh, my 11-year-old came home. She was 10 at the time and told me that Um, why do we celebrate Christopher Columbus? He was a bad dude and we should take the uh, monument down, a statue down by my house. So um, she's right. It's incredible that this generation is speaking like that, but I have to explain how we got here. I can't just say, well, you're right. Let's rip that book up and I'll tell you the one we should have, but we got to explain how we got here because that to me is really fixing the system, right? It's our kids. It's our kids now that have to grow up and raise their kids in a fundamentally different world that, um, that you're at the forefront of now, Lavelle. And that's what's so incredible is your story, which for a second, I'm sure to peers of yours or people behind closed doors was a failed basketball career has turned in now to a time in, in life where you're as important to society, in my opinion, as anyone. Um, you see Mikey Williams, maker-maker going to HBCUs. I know the conversation's changing. KD and a handful of other guys have have, have raised their hand and, and clearly see what Chris Paul is doing, and it's time to help. It's not going to happen overnight. Um, but tell me a few things. A, uh, what do you do to capitalize on this moment? What do you do to help bring more money into these programs? And then tell me honestly, and maybe answer with this first, what have the white... NCAA college basketball coaches that have made generations after generations of wealth. What have they done? And have they done enough?
2: I made that statement and it it was troublesome to me at that time. And, you know, everyone knows me. I'm not, I don't have malice in my heart. I'm a guy I love, but you know, during that time, I just felt the need to call the truth and call a spade a spade It's just who I was. And I always just felt like, look, man, like let's not take ourselves so serious as these coaches. Like, damn, like, yeah, we got a cute little play and, you know, whatever. We won a couple of championships and this shit. But the reality is we are really well off because of guys who were the complexion of George Floyd, whether in football and basketball. And I just got frustrated at that particular time because it was like, it was almost like you you love, you want our rhythm, but you don't want our blues. Right? You love our culture, but you don't love us. And I know you love our culture because, shit, when we put out a dance, it's on TikTok, and you mastered it in 24 hours. You know, the rap lyrics, all this, and all that, but the moment someone gets killed in the street, no one is saying nothing, and it's crickets, and I just had a problem with that, because you're sitting on these kids' sofas, telling them you're going to be the second father and all this bullshit when you're selling the recruiting approach, and then when it happens, this is when they need you, so all I was saying was, Let's show up for these kids the way we ask these kids to show up for us. Because when we're in the summer and we go on our vacations on these fancy yachts and these destinations, they go back to the hood. <laughs> and so they're not the running back at such and such college no more. They ain't the point guard at such and such college. If a cop tracks them down on the radio, the description he's given is, I got a young black male headed north on – so now it's the reality. And so now it's being covered in front of the world to see. And so I think after I said what I said and with the climate right now, I've received so many calls, Rich, from white coaches and my white peers in the business saying, you know what? You are 100 percent right. What is it that I can do? And I respect that. Right. I respect that. What is it that I could do? And I said, the first thing you have to do is educate yourself to understand how they feel right? Because you probably never been back to their house after you came off the recruiting pitch. Like, but these guys live a harsh reality. And so I think they're saving grace. And let's, let's be honest, coaches have power. That's why we have, most of us are the highest paid in the state or at our school. That's why we have commercials, right? That's how we have PSAs, because we have influence. So how are we going to use this influence? How are we going to use this platform to better the lives of these guys that we're saying one, two, three family and breaking huddles with, right? So I think coach K does a wonderful job here. He has the Emily K center and it just produces so many career opportunities for black and Brown kids. And he don't get a lot of credit for that because he ain't in the media, but he does a lot of those things. And I just ask for every coach to do something right. Because, Let's be honest. If, if it don't mean that much, then don't recruit kids that look like myself and George Floyd no more and see, and, and see how long you have a job. That's the reality. You know what I'm saying? Like, so you got to do something. You got to show these guys that you care.
0: Um, how big are these recruits that have committed? How big is this for the future right now?
2: I think it's big because it's changing the landscape. And this is a generation where they're not as courageous as we was in, in terms of going out on their own. But once one person does it, they're just as powerful in their movement together and collectively. And I just think, I just thought somebody just had to be the first one. And I think with the kid committing to Howard, everyone is opening their eyes and realizing, look, man, I control my own narrative. I am the product. No coach has made any pros. They were pros when they got to campus, and they probably they were pros before they got to campus in high school. And so they are the product. And so if you are top lottery pick, then wherever you go, it can be North Carolina Central Tech, North Carolina Central. I don't care where you go. You can go to DeVry Institute. You're only going to be there for four and a half months before you go uh, to the league, and these kids are starting to realize that and, and come up with that information.
0: Man coach it has been just as good as i thought it was bro for real i really truly appreciate your time today such an honor it is such an honor it's inspiring and i really i really mean it when i tell you that um i really think you have such a future in front of you to do so much and lead so many Uh, your words are so strong and so clear and and you've been through a lot man and you're still standing and i think that at the end of the day that message rings with everybody right cuz we're all going through a lot right now as a society and you know your perseverance your ability to lean on people um and, and ask for advice ask for help and also to co- challenge yourself and keep going at it really um really commendable man
2: thank you man this is this has been a blast i respect you guys so much and what you're doing man and i want to thank y'all because I don't know if you get told this, but just the plat—just how you are using your platform to spread messages, um, to inspire and touch the lives of others—and hands down, I thought you've made three of the best documentaries I've, I've ever seen in my life. Like I, I really mean that. Like,
0: talk to me. Which ones?
2: Cueball, ball, uh, Steph, and the PG County. I love. I love. Them. Thank you, man. I love. Like they were—they were all basketball stories. But they, were, they weren't even basketball stores. It just had a basketball in it, right? And so the, whatever, the message that you extracted from each one of those had zero to do with basketball, right? It just had everything to do with life, but you just used basketball as a metaphor to, to touch the world and get that tension of, of everyone. I thought it was beautiful, man, and, and phenomenal work, man. So y'all keep doing what you do. And uh, thank you so much. I'm humbled. Thank you so much for, for having me, man, because I know who you guys are and what you do with your platform, and I'm just blessed to be on it.
0: Well, I appreciate that, man. And uh, Gianni, thank you as always. Boardroom, out of office. Podcast three has been a true blast. Coach, speak to you soon, man.
2: Thank you, boss. Take care.
0: All right. Another incredible conversation, bro. Wow. Inspiring dude, man. I am, I am really honored I got to talk to that guy.
2: Yes,
1: yeah, super insightful
0: incredible man i expect more players to go to hbcus i expect more top coaches to choose to coach at a hbcu and it's because of guys like this and it's because of the time we're in now and really 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 cool conversation um all right bro i'm going to go check out this was really fun man got to go home now head out of the office head back home
1: yeah i'll see you right here next week
0: all right bro appreciate you later man How to get a Maybe a soul you'd sell to have massive